Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. We are excited to announce that we are expanding our operations to include a brand new community space, the StoryCraft Cafe. This community represents Dabble's commitment to being a resource for all writers, whether you use Dabble or not. This cozy new space is intended to foster an inclusive writing community where we can come together to learn, share our wisdom, vent, and grow in our craft together. The community will feature regular discussion and events, including the following. Daily discussion and writing prompts, monthly conversations with writing experts, authors, and editors, genre-specific spaces with forums and discussion topics, writing group facilitation, and beta reader matchmaking, monthly challenges and contests. We can't wait for you to come by, grab a cup of digital tea, and join in the conversation. Stay tuned for more info. Welcome to episode three of the StoryCraft Cafe. Today we have an interview that is bound to resonate deeply with story crafters of all stripes, science fiction author Richard Fox. On today's show, we talk about the importance of finding your passion and writing from a place of pure joy. Before we dig into our conversation with Richard, let's take a moment to hear from the late, great Anne Rice as she tells us about how she learned to believe in herself and the story she had crafted. Well, it took a lot longer than I ever dreamed it would. You know, if somebody had told me in my 20s, um, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be published in your 20s, you're going to be 35 before you see a novel in print, I would have been very discouraged. But that is, in fact, what happened. And But I'll tell you, the night I finished uh, Interview with the Vampire, which did turn out to be my first novel, I knew that I had pulled something together. And I knew that it had been a breakthrough for me. And I rem- the reason I remember is I, I keep a diary, a handwritten diary. And I wrote in my diary that night, this will be my first published novel, even if I have to sell it myself out of a shopping bag on Fifth Avenue. Print it up and sell it myself. And and I'll tell you, I was inspired to do that by a poet that lived in Berkeley at that time. Her name was Julia Vinaigrette. And she used to go around on Telegraph Avenue selling her books of poetry out of a bag. She'd come up to you in a cafe and say, you want to buy a book of poetry? And I always thought that was a courageous thing for that woman to do. I, I bought her book over and over again. <laughs> but I really thought, I, 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 I thought of Julia Vinograd and I thought, I'm going to do that, you know, if, with this novel, because I know I did something here that I haven't been able to do before, and it, I have a sense of completeness, of resolution. But uh, fortunately for me, within nine months, that novel was accepted for publication, and it did go on to become Interview with the Vampire, published in 1976 when I was 35. But uh, I, I hope and pray that I would have gone on, even if it had taken another 10 years, you know, uh, another right. 15 years, I would have gone on. Well, thanks for joining me today in the StoryCraft Cafe. This is Hank Garner, your host. 
I'm super excited to welcome my good friend Richard Fox uh, to the show today to talk all about writing space opera and military sci-fi and finding your passion uh, in in your writing space. Uh, you may know uh, Richard from his very successful uh, space opera series, the Ember War series, and all of the the, the stories and series that connect to that, and we're going to talk all about that today. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Super excited to to dig in. Uh, so, so Richard, I, I started, uh, I came up with a question that I've asked a couple of people already, um, and I think it's a fun way to start off a conversation about writing. Um, what is a piece of writing advice that you've gotten from someone? Uh, and maybe it's a fantastic piece of advice that you refer back to and that has kind of changed the way you think about writing and maybe publishing, or maybe it's a just horrible piece of advice <laughs> that you think back on and, you know, thank God I didn't do that. Or maybe I did do that. And, you know, those people didn't know what in the world they were talking about. Do you have any anything like that that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, uh, well, for bad advice, it really you have to don't trust anything from Ernest Hemingway because he 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 has a lot of famous like little Hemingwayisms, but then yeah. you look at his life and he didn't follow any of them at all. Right. So I have a feeling he was just trolling everyone who kept pestering him about how to be an awesome writer. But as for really good advice, um, gosh, help me out here, Hank. Who was the guy that that directed the first two Avenger movies? I'm I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, I am too, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, um, giant head he's been in trouble lately and then um but so he directed a movie or he wrote a movie uh called the cabin in the woods which was actually yes. pretty good and i listened to the director's commentary through there and one of the things he says is that you, it's very important for the story for what does the reader or audience know and when do they know it and I always that always stuck with me because it's like if, if you know what the reader knows Right. And then you can, you can play with what their perceptions are. When do they learn this piece of information? Because sometimes as a writer, we can drop a little seed, you know, early, early on in the book, and then you come back to it. So right. you, you, how, how you're setting up your Chekhov's guns and where you're, you're starting off your story arcs is real important. You got, and just, you know, be cognizant of when does the reader know this, in this piece of information and how is it going to affect the whole rest of their story? You know, it's always like that, 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 uh, it's, you know, how you how do you build tension? If the audience knows there's a bomb under a table during during the course of a conversation, and the two characters don't know there's a bomb, right? Then the reader's like, ah, there's a bomb, do something. Meanwhile, the characters are like, this this cheese sandwich is fantastic. So, <laughs> you know, so what what does the audience know? When do they know it? And then how does that affect the story? That that was a good piece of advice that I've always uh, always kept in mind. So speaking of that, do you have a system that you've developed that helps you track, um, you know, what what you've told the reader and and how you're kind of dealing out those pieces of information to the to the audience? Do, do you have a way to track that or well, is I, it just just in your mind knowing this is something I have to keep track of? I, I'm a big outliner. OK, so, so sometimes I'll, I'll put in you know, during my outlines, I'll say, you know, make sure that, you know, to pet, pay this off later on or when i'm doing the outline i'll go hey wait i need to set this up and going back into an outline and knowing where to put in plot points before you start writing the manuscript has been a huge time saver also it doesn't tends to stop 
those moments of existential dread where you think, oh, I'm 50,000 words into the story. Oh, no, I totally screwed up my second act because I didn't set it. I did not, you know, I had to rewrite my first act to make my second act work. But then when I rewrite the first act, now the second act doesn't work. So outlining uh, for me solves that that problem a lot of the time. So since you went to outlining so early in our conversation, I have to ask you this. You know, the uh, everybody likes to divide writers into two camps, either plotters or pantsers. And, you know, whether you believe that or not, uh, that that people fit snugly into one or the other, that's a whole different conversation. Um, But, you know, the the other the other camp would say that outlining kills the story, takes all of the spontaneity out of it. You you know, you've heard all the arguments that, Mm. I mean, Stephen King wrote half of on writing about why you should never outline, you know, Mm. Um, how do you answer those, those criticisms? Well, I tell you, outlining solves a whole bunch of problems during the right, during the manuscript process. And then, you know, as far as taking out spontaneity, you know, when I have my outline and then I'm writing the manuscript, every once in a while, the muse will still lean, lean over and whisper in my ear, he doesn't like hamburgers, or something like that. And it's just <laughs> right. something ridiculous. And then I'm like, oh, you know, that actually works. And I found, yeah. like, the better the outline, and if I get one of those, you know, the good idea fairy shows up, generally I can still work that in. Yeah. So I, I've not had a point yet where I've been, you know, it's I have had a couple times where I've got the really good outline, and then I'm writing the story, and I realize, oh, no, this needs to go in a very different direction, but with all the same sort of beats. Yeah. So because I still had the story worked out, I can just, you know, maneuver that way. And it, it didn't really hurt the story too much. It just took a little, little bit longer to write. Well, and um, if the muse does whisper, you know, something about hamburgers, uh, then you have the ability to check your outline to see if that's, you know, sometimes the muse gives bad advice. You know, just just because you get a whisper in your ear doesn't mean you need to chase it down. Maybe, you know, maybe that's going to trigger something else down the road. But that every idea that comes in your head is not necessarily a good idea. No, not always. There's been a couple of series where I've had, you know, I intended for a certain plot line to happen, but then it yeah. just never did. Or rather, if I tried to put that plot line in, it would have felt shoehorned. And right. I think readers can pick up on that pretty quick. Where they're sitting there going like, I'm just reading fluff. And they just start skipping. And that, that's, I always try to, you know, never have fluff in any of my stories. It's always yeah. important to the, to the script. You have a very popular series and then sub-series that have been spawned from this series in, in the space opera slash military sci-fi space. Um, in the in the Ember Wars, and this has been a a wild success for you. Um, but you didn't begin writing sci-fi, and I I happen to know that you have been a sci-fi fan from the time you were a kid. You know, I've, I've you know heard you talk um, all the time about your love of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, and you know how you spent your uh, allowance money on new Star Trek novels as they came out. So you were a, a, a sci-fi head. You know, way back in the day. Uh, but when you started writing, you actually started writing historical fiction and um, uh, kind of espionage thrillers. Uh, I think there was a uh, an espionage series that you wrote. Four or five books, if I remember right. Four books. Yeah. Four, four books. Yeah. Um, and and you you wrote enough in those genres um, to be an established author in those genres. Uh and then you you took like a hard left turn uh, into what you're 
or uh, what you're writing now. Um, first off, that my first question is, uh, and and by no means do I mean that that people can have only one passion and and one genre that they love because I read all over the place. Uh, I, I love thrillers, I love sci-fi, I love fantasy, and and some of those don't feel like they're connected at all. Uh, although I just love great storytelling. Um, what was it that got you interested in, and what made you think that that was the place that you needed to be in your writing career at the time? Well, so I started off with uh, military thrillers. And when I started, I was I, I, I had uh, finished my second tour in Iraq as a military intelligence officer. And then I was working as an intelligence analyst in the D.C. area. And so everything about the background was like, clearly, military thrillers is the thing for you. Right. I was, you know, immediately more qualified than Tom Clancy, who was a real estate agent with a with a library card. Right. So I think, okay, I, I've got the background. I should be able to, you know, knock this out of the park. And so the, the problem is, I was writing military thrillers, sort of from the military veteran perspective of what right. these should be. And the vast, vast, vast majority of people who read military thrillers are not in the military. Right. So and. Those and so those four titles didn't sell well, but you know they, they were you know they got good enough reviews. People were like oh, this isn't bad, so you know I yeah. had that boost of confidence. People weren't saying this is terrible, but rather it just you know didn't really appeal to that that wider audience. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I had written the uh, uh, the Red Baron, uh, which is a, a World War One novel, and I had that the first thing I ever wrote was a screenplay for the Red Baron. And so when I was uh, sitting around thinking, well, what should I write next? Well, I had this screenplay and pretty much an already done story for the Red Baron. And turning that screenplay into a, a book was pretty easy, actually. Yeah. So but then I, I was thankfully I, was, I was, got some mentorship from Russell Blake, who who's a, really big in the indie um, oh, yeah. um, military thriller space. And I, I came to him and like, what am I doing wrong? And he said, have you considered a different genre, which uh, may have been his really polite way of saying this was not for me. I kind of wasn't going to succeed there. And then I'm like, well, you know, I've, I've loved Star Wars since before I could walk. Maybe I should try a military thriller or, excuse me, a military science fiction space opera sort of space adventure stories. Yeah. And turns out that really when it comes time to write uh, what you've read and really have a passion about reading for your whole life, when it's time to write, writing that really works. I had the illogical assumption of, well, I'm military background, intelligence analyst background. I should be writing these things. Meanwhile, I had not been reading military thrillers my my entire life. I had not been right. reading John Le Carre and all those classic spy novels my entire life. But I had been reading Star Wars. I've been reading Star Trek. I knew Warhammer Forty Thousand inside and out. Right. So, you know, it's like if the passion is in one genre. And you can write in that genre, you're probably going to do really well because you've done the groundwork. If you sit there and like if you if all your entire you know reading experience has been Westerns and you sit there thinking, I need to write Harlequin romance, it's not might not work. So but if you sit there and go, I'm gonna write Westerns now, go for it. You're 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 ninety-nine percent of the way there. So when you when you had this epiphany, um and you think, okay, I maybe this is where I need to focus my attention. How do you, because I know you're a big planner, you're a, you're a plotter. Um, when you started that first Ember War book, did you have, a, I think 
probably you didn't have an idea that it would turn into what it's turned into. But were you thinking a series? Uh, or were you thinking this is going to be one standalone book? Like, how did you I had get a your series, feet wet? Yeah, I had a series in mind with the Ember War where I had, you know, a, like I knew exactly what was going to happen in the first book. And then I had pretty solid ideas for like up to like book five or so. Yeah. And I had the very last scene in mind for the Ember War, which was going to be the main characters are standing in this alien you know, uh, vessel and the, the, the aliens who were helping them out just abandoned them. And now humanity was all alone in a galaxy that did not like them. So I just wanted to have that kind of what the heck do we do now sort of moment. And that, that that's where I knew the story was going to end it was right there. So it was good to have that insight end state in mind. But then, you know, like so some of this, like I have my original notes for the whole series. And like one of the things like where like book five was, maybe prison planet or you know it was book three defend you know cat people from while they you know it was really vague but like right. I, I, this is gonna be good here and then as the story progressed i started realizing well okay you know, i need to you know how to solve this whole thing happened and I, during the course of the story i realized oh i got to deal with this evil space god or you know the, how do i deal with that and i thought oh wait I have my own other space god over here. I can just bring him in. And that ended up being, you know, you're like, I hadn't planned on that being a thing. I just thought it was going to be like a little piece of information that this that this thing that the main characters recovered from this one space god. And turns out I was able to use that space god as the, the linchpin to, hold, to, to finalize the whole story. And then that evil space god ends up coming back in the third series as a big problem. So... It all worked out pretty well. It's nice to know you could look at all the pieces I have and like, well, how can I move them around? Right. And it's good to do that. So as you started writing it, when did you realize that you had hit um, the thing that was going to be the success for you? Um, was it in well, – I guess let me ask it this way. Did you know in writing that book – this is where I'm supposed to be, or was it after the book was written and you started marketing the book and it started finding an audience and then, you know, realizing that this story was resonating with people. Is that what kind of gave you the validation? Where, where did you start seeing the validation? But with, uh, with the Ember War, it was, I, I told myself, okay, if this doesn't sell, then I don't, I don't have the touch. I don't have the magic. I guess I'm going to just abandon this forever. It's going to be like, ah, oh, yeah, I wrote a book once. Haha. But Right. Um, so, so when it came time to do the Ember War, I just said, I'm going to have as much, I'm just gonna have a lot of fun with this. And, you know, just went up, you know, just had a huge amount of fun writing it. And I thought, okay, this is going to be like a, a Michael Bay movie, but with mildly, marginally better dialogue. Right. That's, that was <laughs> my plan for the Ember War. And uh, so I put it out there and then it, it actually sold really well. And like, I remember when, like the first time I sold more than a hundred copies of single day, I woke my wife up and she, she don't do this, uh, guys at home. You know, to tell your wife that you, you sold 100 bucks in the middle of the night. She's not going to be pleasant. Please. So, you know, I'm like, hey, I sold a, a, over 100 bucks. I, I will be gosh darned. People really like this. Oh, maybe I'm on to something, you know. So right. it was the feedback from, the you know, the free market that said you know, we're enough readers are going, hey, I like that. Click buy. And actually, now I'm at the point after about seven years of full-time writing where I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm this close to selling my one millionth book. I'm just waiting for some uh, sales reports from from Bain and a couple other places. I'm this close. I'm like 980, 981,000 books sold. And if I could just, so 
it's going to happen this year for sure, but my millionth book is coming. So, but then, uh, and then when I put out the second book and I was, I said, yeah, I'm still going to have as much fun as I can. And, you know, when I was writing the second book, um, it's mostly uh, one small team running around a planet trying to find this one uh, artifact that's been hidden. And I, and I realized this is kind of boring because they're just ducking probes, alien, you know, the, the bad guys. And, and I was like, it's a little boring. Like, I need more here. And I, then I looked back through my other ideas I've written down and like, I had this one thought for, you know, just in my notes, it's uh, free the farm. And what that was is, you know, aliens had captured a bunch of humans thousands of years ago yeah. and were just breeding them and, you know, keeping them kind of like farm animals. And there was this one, you know, this one team of space marines had to go in there say, hey, no, they're going to eat you. Let's have a revolt and get out. And I just had this idea for who these aliens were that were keeping human beings as as cattle. And, I, and I'm looking at the second book and I thought, well, this is boring. Hey, I got this other idea. Why don't I bring these bad guys in here to make things interesting? So, so now the second book has evil alien lizards that feed off brains, and then at the end there's this giant crystal jellyfish. It's, it's just it's insane, but somehow people love it. People they really do love it. So um, I, I, I'm you know I I can't argue with with my audience. So they like what they like. I just give them more of it. Do you find yourself in writing feeling like that that ten year old sci-fi fan? Uh, you know, just just living the dream that you always yeah, had. There'll be a lot of times where like this is gonna be freaking awesome. Or, you know, <laughs> I don't care how ridiculous it is. He's gonna drop through the ceiling, and then you know it's just it's just gonna be crazy. So, you know, it's 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 good to have fun while yeah. you're right, but then also to know where like this may be a little too far. Let's, let's step it back just a bit. Well, there there's there's definitely um, a feeling of of fun and and satisfaction that comes with knowing that you found your spot, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, uh, as opposed to I know that that money can be made with publishing. If I if I work the business like this and like this and like this, I know that I can, you know, eventually be successful at it. That doesn't necessarily equate to happiness, um, although, you know, it could be said the more money you make, the happier you can get. Um, but there there's something to be said about finding your passion and being able to make money from that, that that's just a whole different level of satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, um, you know, the thing is no matter what job you're in, you always have bills, right? So you, you do have to pay the bills. And if you can find something that you love doing and pays the bills, you, you, you will never work a day in your life. 100%. And, and so, but also sometimes you have to, there's that old adage of you know, no tears in the, and the author, no tears in the reader, no surprise, and the, re and the author, no surprise in the reader. And if someone is just writing something because, well, I gosh, I got a deadline and I got to get it done. Uh, it's, it's the story is probably going to come across pretty flat for the audience because they're going to pick up on that lack of passion. And I think right. it was there's one was it Raymond, Raymond Chandler. There's one noir author who, who whose real his real passion was poetry. But mm -hmm. my gosh, could he crank out noir novels that people love to read? But he really wanted to just write poetry, and that's all. His, and but his publisher only wanted the noir novels because the noir novels sold. So he eventually cut a deal with them that said, "Look, I'll keep writing you noir novels, but you have to publish my poems too." And the publisher wisely said, "Okay, fine." So, and um, <laughs> but I, I tell you, one book, one series was his passion, and the other one paid his mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. 
whatever works, whatever yeah. works. Um, you mentioned a minute ago that you are in your seventh year as a full-time uh, author. Right. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, since doing this full-time that your daily writing uh, ritual slash running the business of being an indie author has probably changed a little bit. What's a what's a typical day look like for you? Right. Well, it's I noticed that um, it, the writing ends ends up happening around my children's schedule because <laughs> yeah. kids. I, I, I have some I have young boys and they're you know they don't quite understand. Daddy needs thirty six hours alone to finish this book. They don't understand it. They're like it's right. bedtime, Dad. Come on. So, um, but no, normally. You know, I wake up, I get the kids up, push them out to school, and I can sit down. I go to good six to seven hours by myself, and that's when I'm most likely not going to be bothered, and I can sit down and focus and knock out the words. So I've noticed that I need long stretches of being left alone excuse me, to, to, you know, to write. So I would normally write for about 55 minutes, take a break, you know, do, you know, uh, do a little bit of exercise to keep the blood flowing, get a snack, coffee, come back, do it again for another 55 or so minutes. And then just keep and then keep doing that over and over again. And then evenings and or maybe sometimes early mornings is when, OK, now it's time for emails. Now it's time to manage ads. Now it's time to handle back matter. So I, I save all the little ankle biters to the end of the day when I don't need to be focused and creative. Because I'm sitting there just copying and pasting back matter into a new book, and you're updating a cover. That this is not something that requires a lot of a lot of you know, brain power. Yeah. So I say that to the end of the day when it's just you know I can sit there with a rum and coke and like I'm just gonna fix this book down. So. Right. Um, are you the kind of person? Uh, you know, some authors have to write every single day, wh- whether they're working on a particular project or whatever. And then some authors I know. Uh, will section off six, eight, 12 weeks at a time. And that's when they're drafting a book and nothing else matters. And and then they'll take, you know, two, three months off and kind of do the other business of life. And, and the writing, you know, kind of gets shut off and, and you take a mental break from it. Um, are you the, the kind of person that, that has to stay at it every day? Or are you, do you like to segment off life uh, to, to writing and other times? I've noticed that I will get into a rhythm of preparing the book, writing the outline, getting covers going, and then it, then it finally coalesces into now it's time to sit down and bang 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 it out. And then I'll spend a good two or three weeks or however long the story needs, and then just be working on the, the word count. And then I send that off to editors, and while they're doing their thing, I, I decompress a little bit from that story, and then move to you know then start the whole process over again yeah. for the next story. So it's a lot of, you know, preparing, 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 action, and then yeah. prepare, 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 action, like that. Um, you have uh, been wildly successful as a as an indie author, um, and uh, no one can argue with the, the impact that you've made there. Um, over the last 10 years or so since the indie revolution that the kindle revolution let's be honest with it um kind of happened and and the the publishing landscape really changed and opened all kind of avenues for authors um we have uh as is you know uh, 
as happens with with humans we we want to fall into camps you know and you've got the the indie authors versus the traditional uh traditionally published authors and you know you you tend to you know little skirmishes and wars tend to to pop up you know exactly what i'm talking about mm-hmm. um you recently signed a contract with bain books uh didn't you which is uh, a tradition a traditional publisher in the science fiction uh space and uh what are your thoughts about doing that and and you know um what what was your motivation in in wanting to kind of split your your work right well with so i was indie for the vast vast majority of, mm-hmm. of my career and then as things went on you know um david weber said hey come come write this series with me and of course that was going to be done through bain yeah. and then you know, i got to meet with uh, tony weisskopf i talked to her a lot and uh, i thought Speaking with her, I'm like, I would love to have her edit some of my stories. I've never had a developmental editor or somebody who can come along and say, Richard, this would really improve the story. It's never happened. Yeah. It's always been like, I, I'm just going to do it. So, but, uh, you know, as for the two camps, you know, it really is for if you as the writer, if you are the like the one kind of guy, it, it depends on how much of the entrepreneur side you want to do. Yeah. So if you're okay with doing your own covers, getting your own editors, and doing all the work around publishing the book, then okay, you know, then you then you're good there. There's other people out there who they, they just sit there and like, I want to write and then be done. And then yeah. for those folks, the traditional side is is obviously much much better for them. So, but going, you know, straddling going through the two, you know, it's 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 a, it's a personal choice. I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, who publishes your book doesn't make the book any better. Right. Doesn't make you as a writer any better. It's really more about well, which audience is he going to get to? Because I'm starting to realize that there's, you know, people on Amazon or, or the p- people who read through Amazon, and they are you know, really voracious readers. So when it comes to those voracious readers, they tend to get a little price conscious. Like I love reading Warhammer Forty Thousand, yeah. and for some reason those eBooks are seventeen dollars each, and I'm like. Seventeen dollars. I mean, you know, sometimes these ebooks can cost more than the, the hardbacks. Right. So, and and for you know, Warhammer has its own very rapid fan base, so they can I guess they can get away with charging the prices. But for people who are you know starting to get to into writing, if you put your first novel out there for seventeen dollars, there's a lot of readers going to be like, nope, nope, nope. I don't know if you're good, and I don't want to spend my time. I don't want to risk my time and eighteen dollars because. Yeah. You know, nothing's going to upset someone more if they they, re, they spend like three hours with a story and realize they hate it and toss it away. But then and then and they spent eighteen dollars on it. Oh my gosh, you're you're, you're going to get a bunch of one stars for that. Yeah. But then you have readers who you know like oh I can get this through Kindle Unlimited. Let me try the first couple chapters through KU and oh I like it. Then they read everything. Yeah. And there was oh I don't like it. I've only lost an hour or two of my time on this story. Okay, they're not as angry. So I think readers really they're more interested in not losing not wasting their time in a story they're not going to like i agree with you i agree with you um you mentioned that uh you and david weber uh co-authored uh some books together and i also know that uh you and our friend josh hayes have have co-authored together he um wrote a a series with you uh in your emperor wars universe um what do you think about the the whole co-author um, dynamic? There, there seems to be a, uh, a a trend over the last 
couple three years where some some co-authors are are really making a big splash what what does that um what does that that unique relationship offer you um as an author and as a, a series creator what does bringing on new voices do for you well, for for me, when I've brought on co-authors, it, it's normally it's because I could don't have the time to tell that story otherwise. So if I hadn't had Josh Hayes and Scott Moon working with me, um, we probably would not have had Terra Nova come out when it did. And right. the, the Terra Nova being a, a really good, important part of the Ember War universe. And the same with the Terran Strike Marines that, that Scott Moon did. So it was, you know, I said, I looked at everything I wanted to write. Like, I can't do it all in the time I have available. I know Scott and Josh can write really well. Let me bring them in, and then you know we, we can get these stories out there. So really, it, and the readers love it because readers get more stories that they like. So that works out for everybody. But when it comes to any sort of writing collaboration, it I, there may be going too far as metaphor, but it's like a marriage. You know, you really have to jive with the person you want right. to do this with. Versus somebody else, you know, you say, hey, I need this by this time. And then the, months later, you don't hear from them. And, oh, now the book's out. And then you have to rewrite half of it. And because it's not, you know, what what you agreed on that you were going to write with. So, you know, it's amazing how sometimes you can give someone, here, here write, write, just write this. And then they come back with, not that. And it's like, what? <laughs> I told you exactly <laughs> what to write. We agreed. And then now there's this whole subplot with a raccoon. Where did this come from? And then... <laughs> And then you and just the raccoon's not going to work in the story. And then everyone gets upset because you got to say, yeah, I have to cut out the raccoon. And then so, uh, but, you know, it comes down to collaboration. So there's some collaborations which have been going on forever and ever, like Dune with Kevin J. Anderson and, uh, right. and uh, not Frank Herbert, but um, yeah, Frank, yeah Frank the other Herbert. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and those work really well. And then a lot of the author collaborations that fail miserably, we probably never hear about. Do, do you think that um, I, I I completely agree with the the uh, almost marriage relationship that needs to be there and 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 by that you, you, the the mutual trust and the uh, more than just mutual trust but the the ability to um, think like one another and to to have a similar voice um, how how do you merge uh, the voices, you know, you have a very particular voice. Josh has a very particular voice. Scott has a very particular voice, but when you do these co-author, um, uh, projects, uh, it winds up being a Richard ish voice. Um, it's not like a, it's not like a, you create a completely third different voice. You know, how do you merge those things and the, and the very particular ways that authors express themselves? Well, with um, with Josh and, and Scott writing in the Ember War, the Ember War already had its sort of its style and yeah. its voice and its tone, and they've read all that and they know it, so they can they can follow in that. And then then when they give me you know the manuscripts that I go through and I more Richardize it through some parts, yeah. and like there's been a couple parts in like like Terra Nova which had this one humorous scene where you know they're on this ship that's 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 in the in space and they don't have a name for it. So they sit there and like, well, how, how are they going to name this this ship? And and they made the classic error of letting the the, the crew, the, the Marines and the, the the Pathfinders and you know basically military guys name yeah. try to name the ship. And there's this whole process where the names just get they pull the names out of the hat. It's just more and more ridiculous and offensive as they go along. Right. Which, and 
and I, I was real proud of that scene. I was really proud of, you know, all those jokes I could put in there. And but, you know, that was when I, when I was sitting there with, with Josh, like I had that scene already in my head. And I, I told Josh, just leave this part blank. I'll fill that in later. So, and it's, a, you know, they knew what the style was. Yeah. And off we went. And I don't think there's really been a part where readers are like, I can't tell which part was Richard and which part was Josh. And then I've read some collaborations where, where you know, it's like all of a sudden the, the tonal, there's this huge tonal shift. Yeah. For three chapters, like, okay, I know who wrote that part. So, but when it comes to writing with uh, David Weber, I've been reading David's books since I was like 18. Right. So, so when I, I, I knew, I kind of knew his voice cadence. I knew this is how things are going to happen in there. And then, so I was able to, you know, approximate David's voice as best I could and then give the story back to him. And then he makes sure it's all properly, you know, what his audience expects. Yeah. How many years have you been writing the Ember Wars universe? About seven, seven years now. So I, I just finished up the last, the end of the story with a book called Legends Rise. And I still have to write one prequel novel that I promised my audience. And that might happen. It should happen this year. Should. That, that's what I was going to ask you. I saw that you posted on Facebook uh, a, a, a little while back that you just wrote the final. Um, but w- what does that mean for you? To, for something that has occupied your life for seven years. And, and like you said, you've got the other prequel that you've got to do. But um, but this is it, it is kind of wrapping up. What does that feel like? But it actually feels good because the, where the story ends is where the story has ended. And I think there's a lot of times authors will get into the point where like this is selling really well. I can never stop writing it. Right. And and then the, the, the story just kind of drags on and on and on. And, you know, for the Ember War, at, at the end of every series, I realize, well, there's something really important that's been left unresolved. And then the, that gets resolved in the next series. And there's something else that's been unresolved and that gets resolved in the next series. And now with Legends Rise. You know, there are still problems in the galaxy, but all the ones that the characters haven't worried about are pretty much done. And then I also, you know, put a good bow on the whole series for all the readers. And I think readers probably appreciate knowing that the series is done and that they can look back and reflect and be happy that the series is done. Because a lot of series, they just never end. And then the author passes away and the brand new sentence and has to come back in and fix the whole dang thing and then finish it. So, so it's, you know, it's, I would rather, excuse me, I would rather give readers, you know, complete stories. Yeah. And let them be, you know, let them have that sense of completion and, you know, knowing that it's done. Then just have one thing that just never ends. And then people feel like, oh my God, another one of these books? What happened now? It's, you know, it's kind of that, uh, the monster of the week sort of problem. Yeah. Oh, look, the Ember War, they, they beat the Geist. Oh, now here's this new alien race from Beyond the Galaxy. He's like, oh, my gosh, when is this going to end? So I, I, you know, the story was done, so the story was, was finished. And I can still always, you know, direct people, hey, go look at, go read the Ember War now. And, you know, as I, I start doing new and new series along as, the, as those, come, those come up. So I like to, I liken my reading, my, my, uh, my library of all titles to kind of like a theme park, you know, come in for the Ember War ride. Oh, thank you for reading your door through the Ember War. <laughs> How would you like to go on the last fleet roller coaster? Oh, good, good. Last fleet roller coaster. Come on out. Oh, hey, look at this. Look at this water park with David Weber over here. And then, 
you know, so people come in, they're having a great time. They just keep having a great time with what I'm writing. Uh, I remember watching uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, um, arguably the only Star Wars trilogy. But that's that's a conversation for another time and place um, with with one of my daughters uh, several years ago, and she really enjoyed it. And so she got on Amazon and started looking for other science fiction that, that she might enjoy. And she quickly realized that there are more subgenres in science fiction than than she was prepared for. Um, you know, you get into military sci-fi, you get into space opera, and it, it goes on and on and on. Um, how do you think about the subgenres in science fiction? And I, I know that you write military sci-fi slash space opera. Um, what do those subgenres mean to you? And and how do you start? And and do you think about them at all when you're planning a series or writing? Are there certain subgenre tropes that that you feel? need to be included addressed uh what what are, what are your thoughts on that well, i generally don't go into something thinking this is going to be pure military science fiction this is only for this genre yeah rather it's like okay this is a great story i have where does this fit in what people want and you know the ember war okay that's military science fiction space opera it straddles that line really well so it's more i know i know target genres but rather, I have the good story. I just, I just know what it's going to fit into. Yeah. So, and but I generally won't write to the genre. And but as for you know tropes, you know when you got your your military uh, science fiction, you know you, you're going to have to have mil, a military unit doing mil, things in a military manner. And but then also people expect a certain sort of you know, relationship between all the characters. You know, you have your your officers, and you have your non-commissioned officers, and you have whatever threat they're facing. And generally, the threat you're the facing within military science fiction is going to be very different from the the, the main characters. Because all, sometimes it's like it's humans fighting humans with the exact same sort of uh, technology. Then all of a sudden, it becomes more you know action adventure. It doesn't feel as much sci-fi when you're fighting other humans. You know, maybe the humans have augmented themselves to some crazy degree or they're working with aliens and you can you know the more separation you have the more military science fiction becomes and as for space opera you know there is the 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 overarching sort of political aspect to it versus you know you could write a military science fiction story about a squad that's stuck on a planet fighting giant bugs and generally the the you know the, the the next election three stars away is doesn't really matter but as for space opera you know what those senators from the galactic republic are up to it becomes very important so it's kind of like that and you as a military historian as i was a military history major in college and you you have like these, these levels of war you have the tactical level which is where most of the shooting happens you have the the operational level which is where you have the big units maneuvering and you have like Orbital invasions and uh, what's it called? Uh, you, uh, big movements of tank armies. That's operation. And then you have the strategic level, which is where the politicians are sort of at. So if you if you kind of at the bottom level with the, the, the common soldier, that's more military science fiction. The more you elevate the story, then it starts to become more space opera. Gotcha. If if uh to help people kind of understand those distinctions where would you place 
Star Wars and Star Trek in that uh, ranking? Well, Star Star Wars, I would say, is more space adventure. Okay. And because it, like the absolute military aspect of it is not as important as the, the you know Luke's Luke's Luke Skywalker's journey to become a Jedi. Right. It, it's more that's very space than anything. Yeah. Now Star Trek is strangely enough, you know, the more military of it because you know the the USS Enterprise is ostentatiously or ostensibly a military ship. Right. And everyone on there has a military rank. But right. they don't they're, do they're, military things very often. They're all yeah, they're, there. they're Space Navy that doesn't do very Navy stuff. Yeah, it, I mean, you get more of the Navy stuff back in when finally when D Space Nine happens and they have an actual right. war. And then Cisco's like, well, let's talk strategy here. And then for most of the Star Trek audience is like, what's happening? What's going on? Versus, right. it should have been this way the whole time. You're in Starfleet, okay? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, you know, Star Trek is also more the space opera aspect of it because, you know, they have relationships with all of the, uh, you know, the Klingons and the, the Rymans and all that. So yeah. that's definitely more more space opera there. Yeah. The uh, the stories that you're writing for Bane, um, does it does it feel different uh, for you in the writing, knowing that the the business aspect of this is not going to be on your shoulders? Um you know, whereas when you're writing the Ember War, um, is there always something in the back of your mind, uh, you know, knowing that I'm going to be responsible for the marketing of this, for for this and this and this? And does the writing of a Bane book, uh, does it feel any different when you're in the writing stage? And I, I know the the business end of it at the end of the drafting is, is going to be different. It's just going to be. But when you're writing, does it feel any different? Well, for right now, the way with uh, what I had to turn in with Bane is that I've got some space. And they wisely said, yeah, we, we want this book in this month, which is months away. And then we want this other book next year. And I'm like, next year? That's forever. Versus <laughs> the stuff I'm writing now, it's like, I need this book out in six weeks or the algorithms are going to forget me. Right. So, so it's much more when I'm writing for myself, it's kind of a pulp mentality of I have to keep goosing the algorithms with a new title every so often. Versus with Bane... You know, it's I'm going to give it to them and then they, you know, have their kind of almost, you know, I don't want to, they have their own publishing schedule and cadence that they are, they've had worked out over decades. Sure. So, you know, what, what goes to them can, can, you know, have a lot more thought to it and, and, uh, and they actually have a lot more white space on the calendar built in. So it's, it's kind of nice to like, I don't have to turn this book into next year. Oh my gosh, I can take a vacation. What? What's going on? <laughs> Time off? What? What is that? Um, with the end of the Ember War, you know, quickly approaching, do you have a another grand story that that you want to tell? Is there another universe that you want to explore? Uh, you know, what kind of what's the next big thing that maybe is percolating in the back of your mind? I got lots. I, I, and I, I will occasionally mail my or email myself ideas for series and just say, like, okay, that's, that's good. I'll do that later. But for Bane, I, um, the, the first thing that's coming up is a Star Wars is a space adventure series, uh, which we, I, I'm really excited about. And then the other one is a very much more grounded, um, grounded military sci-fi series, which and I've had a, there are some ideas I have for that that aren't going to pay off for like a year or two. But I know when this happens, it's going to be fantastic. So then 
Um, but you know, there's there's lots of you know, other grand ideas. Like I still want to do something that I've just in my mind is you know the the the, the three kingdoms from China um, meets Game of Thrones in space. And I'm sitting like, okay, you know, all these, this is going to be like a nine book giant series. It's going to be huge. It's going to take forever, but it's going to be really good when I, when it happens. And then, you know, then I have a thought, thought, what if I did something with androids, you know, on earth? And I have, I have, I have so many ideas, but right now my writing calendar is packed for like the next 18 months. So I'll get to it eventually. I have plenty of time. Well, I don't have plenty of time, but you know, I've got presumably decades and decades to, to keep writing. Love it. I love it. Richard, if if folks are just discovering you and want to, you know, find a place to jump into what you're doing and and all of the stories that you tell, what, what's the best way for them to uh, to discover all your work? And, and where would you suggest they plug in? Yeah, you know, go to Amazon and uh, read the first Ember War book. And if, if you have an Audible uh, membership, you can pick up the first two audiobooks for absolutely for free. Uh, through through the, their one program if you have the monthly yeah. subscription and then you know I, I say start with the ember war and if the ember war is not not for you i say read the exiled fleet and if you're really into uh a harder core military sci-fi uh read hell's horizon that i wrote with jonathan brzee nice we'll put links to all that in the show notes um i also know that that you love to to blog and to tell what you think about uh you know pop culture type stuff and some of the funniest um i don't want to say takedowns um but um you you have very uh specific opinions about uh and it's so fun to read um you, you blog what, what's your your uh your website where you you blog and all that good stuff yeah um richard fox author is where i put most of my my hit pieces about stories <laughs> that i generally don't care about i, I try to put in some good ones yeah. You know, it's, uh, it was the, the, the Tomorrow War. I actually really liked that. Despite a lot of flaws in the storytelling, it was still really good. It was so, much better than it had any right to be. That's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there was, you know, just... I had read an earlier draft of that, that you know, many moons ago. Uh, yeah. This is going to be awful. I'm going to destroy this. And I saw it, and I'm like, I actually like it. Well, I'll be gosh darn. So, <laughs> I much prefer to watch something I enjoy than not. So it was, yeah. it, it was a happy, happy accident. So we'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Yeah, great being here. Thanks for having me.